You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. Once again, thank you for joining us for our service today. As always, I'm I'm looking forward to the day when when we can actually worship together in the same place. Uh, I know I keep saying that every Sunday, but I can hardly wait. And and to be honest, really, that's one of the hardest parts about this, this whole pandemic and isolation. It's the waiting waiting for this all to be over, waiting until things can get back to normal, whatever that new normal is going to look like, right? Of course, no one really knows when this will be. And yet, at the same time, we can't just put our lives on on hold until then. So so in the meantime, I think one of the things we're all trying to to figure out right now, each of us in our own unique circumstances, is is what do we do and, and how should we live our lives while we wait for this to end? In the same way as as we step back into our series through the book of Daniel, this is the same thought which I'm sure was constantly on Daniel's mind as a Jewish exile in the empire of Babylon. How should he live his life as he waits for this exile to end? And as Christians living in this world as strangers and exiles of the kingdom of God ourselves, this is the same question which should be on our mind as well. What are we called to do or how are we called to live as we wait for this spiritual exile to end, as we wait for Jesus to come again? Uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14 seems to have this question in mind when, when it says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Of course, that's referring to Jesus who came and and died on the cross for our sins. So for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this, this passage reminds us that while we're waiting in this present age for our blessed hope, for Jesus, our Savior, to come again and make all things new, which we discussed last week in Daniel chapter 7, that as we wait for this, we're called to live a certain way, to live godly lives in Christ, to be purified in Him, and to be zealous for good works. In other words, our our anticipation for for what's to come should also affect the way in which we purposefully live and view our lives in the present. And let's be honest, how how different would, would our lives look if we lived each day in anticipation of Christ's return? And with that question in mind, we're going to step briefly into chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. Though, unfortunately, due to time constraints with being online this morning, we won't be able to take a very in-depth look at the chapter. Though we are going to, you know, there is going to be a lot of information anyways. But um, ultimately, I just encourage you guys to read and pray through it on your own time as well. Maybe later today or this week sometime. Read through Daniel chapter 8. Pray through it. Um, just to add on to what we're doing this morning. Um, 
Anyways, first of all, then, I want to point out that this chapter is another record of a prophetic vision shown to Daniel from God during the early reign of King Belshazzar, which means this dream takes place before the events of Daniel chapter 5 and chapter 6, so before the stories of the lion's den and before the writing on the wall and the fall of Babylon. So we can assume that that having had these visions and therefore knowing what was to come, this, this probably gave Daniel even more boldness and confidence in God during those situations. In other words, knowing what lay ahead and knowing that God was in control affected the way he lived and persevered in the present. As theologian Ian Duguid writes, Daniel 8 is a vision about waiting it's, it's a, it is a vision of an end that is not nigh, at least not for Daniel and not for many generations of readers since then, but their lives are not rendered absurd by the fact that they have spent their whole lives waiting for someone who has not yet come. On the contrary, the very act of waiting is given its meaning by the certainty that at the right time, the time of God's own choosing, the Son of Man will come on the clouds to bring history to its conclusion." Like Daniel, we too are believers waiting for the end of all things, an end that may or may not be nigh. In the meantime, we have important lessons to learn from Daniel regarding how we should live while we wait. So on that end, we should, we, we should ask, well, what can we learn from this chapter and from Daniel in regards to how we're called to live our lives in Christ as we wait? To that question, I have uh, seven thoughts or points that we're going to go through this morning. I'm going to try to burn through most of them, some more than others. Um, So seven thoughts or points on how we can wait as Christians. Um, Number one, first point, we can wait with confidence. We can wait with confidence. So as Christians, we we can trust in God to come through for us in the future precisely because we've already seen the evidence of God's promises being fulfilled in the past. In fact, from, from our side of history, we, we can actually see that everything which was prophesied to, Daniel, for, prophesied to happen in Daniel 8 that was supposed to come to pass has now come to pass. For example, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, first of all, that the the ram in his vision will have two horns, and those two horns will represent the kings, the two kings of of the Medes and of the Persians. And and these kings would be unstoppable together in conquering Babylon and beyond. And historically, this is exactly what happened. And we know this in 539 BC, about nine to ten years after Daniel's vision, Cyrus, the king of Persia, along with the Medes, conquered most of the region of Mesopotamia, including Babylon, and then all the way down to Egypt even. And, and so he, Cyrus would create what is, what is now known as the Persian Empire, a dynasty that would reign for about 200 years. It also says that one of the ram's horns in Daniel's vision would grow greater than the other. And again, as history tells us, the Persians, like the greater horn in the vision, would eventually dominate and rule over the Medes as well. Another interesting factor in this vision is that that Daniel says he sees himself standing in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam, meaning this would be an important location of, of what's to come. But at the time of Daniel's dream, this would have just been a supporting city of the empire of Babylon. Yet, eight years after this vision, as history tells us, the Persians would take control of the city and use it as their main military 
base of operations. And, and, and so everything Daniel saw there came to pass as God said it would. And then after this, as the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, a goat would show up and the goat would have one large horn and this large horn would represent the king of Greece. And this king of Greece would be unstoppable in conquering and overthrowing the ram, overthrowing Persia. And history again confirms for us that this is what came to pass. The Greek army in in a military campaign led by the, the, the famous Alexander the Great swiftly and deftly overthrew the great empire of Persia by the year 331 BC. And as Daniel recorded further, in his vision, this Greek king would also be arrogant and become powerful, but yet at the height of his power, he'd be broken. And history tells us that Alexander was an arrogant king who who not only eventually stretched his army too thin and thinking he was invincible, but as was prophesied, he also died at the height of his power from some illness or disease. And interestingly enough, he died in the region of Babylon. Then it says in his vision that four horns would replace the one horn of the goat. And again, history shows us that when Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, he left no heir, and therefore the empire of Greece became split up into four separate kingdoms, which were apparently Macedonia, Thrace and Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt. But Daniel's vision seems to be mainly concerned with one of those four kingdoms in particular because out of it, it says it would rise a king whose actions would directly affect God's people the most. And this king is described as the horn who would grow toward the beautiful land and this beautiful land being Jerusalem. And most scholars think that this horn is most likely referring to King Antiochus IV, who ruled over the regions of of Syria, including Judea, near the end of the Seleucid dynasty from 175 BC to 164 BC. And so he seems to fit this prophecy well. For example, we're told through Daniel's vision that this king would have power unlike the others and that he'd be skilled in intrigue and gaining influence. And again, this is historically accurate. Antiochus IV gained his position of power not by being the rightful heir to the throne or by military might. Rather, he used influence and and his gift of deception to not only gain the crown, but but to even sway many Jews and even Jewish culture to inherit the Greek language and Hellenistic ways. The prophecy also states that near the end of his reign, that in his arrogance, he'll destroy many of God's people, trample on the armies of God, desolate the temple of God, and even stand against the prince of princes, which seems to imply Jesus' throne. And according to historians, around the year 167 BC, when Rome began taking ground from the Greeks, Antiochus IV's armies were were pushed out of Egypt, and so he decided to take out his anger, I guess, on the nation of Judah, and he did this without warning. Basically, he put himself in the place of God, right? He stood against God, and, and he did so by murdering Jews, by abolishing the practice of Judaism. He prohibited Jewish rites, and he even set up an altar for Zeus in the temple of God itself. And so again, as, as we read about all of these prophecies and visions given to Daniel, and then discover how, how they've all come to pass, just as God said they would, This should give us confidence in God's faithfulness and of his promises that are yet to come. We have plenty of evidence to be sure of the fact that if God says something's going to happen, 
we, we can trust that it will to the detail. He is faithful. He is in control of history. As Psalm 33 says, the plans of the Lord stand forever. So we can wait in confidence, which leads us into the second way that we can wait for Jesus's return. Number two, we, we wait with the sense of God's purpose. So when we ponder about the way history is played out, the the truth is it's hard to fully grasp or understand why all these things had to take place or how it fits in God's plan. But we do know that God does everything with purpose. And in the same vein, then then we can we can trust that God knows precisely the way history is all going to play out and that God can even use the actions of evil kings and empires to orchestrate his plan and purpose to overthrow sin and set up an everlasting kingdom. This is exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus' death was meant for evil by those who put him there, but was turned around to becoming the, the final victory over sin and death. This was planned by God. This was preordained by God. God is in control, and he only acts with purpose. And on that end, there are some outcomes of these, these visions from Daniel's, uh, uh, from Daniel chapter 8, which, which we do know about, that we see God working in. For example, it was the, the Persians, after they'd conquered Babylon, who would actually be the ones who would release God's people from exile so that they could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It was the Greeks who started building roads throughout the empire and who also established the Greek language throughout the known world. And these actions actually created fertile ground and ample opportunity for the gospel and the accounts of the apostles, mostly written in Greek, to be spread quickly throughout the region after Christ's resurrection. And so we can see glimpses of God's purposes being played out through history. And we also know that it was this trajectory of history which created the perfect time and moment for Jesus to enter the scene and usher in the kingdom of God. All this to say that as we live for God in this, this time of waiting, we know that God has a reason for what's happening today. In, in fact, as churches continue to meet online, just like the Greek roads, we can see God using this opportunity to bring the gospel to more people than ever before. So we can see God working. We can see God pur- God's purposes at play. And in the same vein, we can trust then that our individual lives also have eternally impacting meaning and purpose as we live for him even if we don't fully understand it right now. And this, this leads us to the third way that we can wait well as Christians. Number three, we wait with perseverance and good courage. So near the end of Daniel's vision, a heavenly being cries out, how long will the events of this vision last? The, the regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. And the answer comes immediately and specifically. It says 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored. And first of all, I want to point out that this is a good question. As we're waiting, God has no problem with us asking him, How long? How long, O Lord? And we may not get an exact answer like Daniel did in his vision, but we can still ask. Many of the Psalms of Lament ask this question. Daniel even asked God this very question about his exile in the next chapter. So I want to encourage you, don't hesitate to come to God and ask, how long? Just make sure you're taking it to God. 
But secondly, it's clear from Daniel's vision and, and from historical accounts that the desolation by Antiochus IV over Jerusalem and of the temple of God was obviously a difficult and hard time for God's people. 2,300 evenings and mornings of suffering. And this amounts to, if we do the math, this amounts to about just over six years. But the silver lining is that God informs them that this won't last forever, that there will be an end to this abomination against his temple and against his people. In fact, the actions of Antiochus IV ended up leading to what would be known as the Judean Maccabean Revolt, and of course, that which led to the miracle of the oil lamps, which Jews celebrate to this day in a, in a holiday called Hanukkah, which I'm sure we've all heard of. Anyways, this revolution went on for, for just over six years against the Seleucid Empire, as prophesied, just over six years, and it was one in the seventh year. Seven, of course, being the number of completion and rest, a time of renewal and restoration. And so we're, we're reminded through Daniel's vision and the record of God's promises that while suffering and, and, and hard times may occur and, and will occur, and that even while waiting can feel long, especially during those times, we can still carry on. We can still persevere knowing that God can and will does and will and does use these moments to eventually usher in and bring renewal. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we can take heart. We can live with courage as we wait for Jesus to return. We can persevere through times of hardship and suffering, knowing that our calling is not in vain and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, a light that leads to eternal glory, which the Apostle Paul writes causes all our sufferings in this present time to pale in comparison. And this leads us to the next way that we can wait. Number four, point number four, we wait in mystery and humility. We wait in mystery and humility. So one of the more surprising details of this chapter is that Daniel, one who's gifted by God to understand and interpret visions, actually has a hard time fully understanding this one. And with the help of the angel Gabriel, he, he mostly gets it. But, but still, this is a reminder that as, as hard as we might try, on this side of heaven, we'll never fully grasp or understand uh, why certain things happen or, or what God's purpose is for allowing or orchestrating events and circumstances to take place. As the Bible says, God's thoughts are, are higher than ours. And as 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 reminds us, even the prophets didn't know the full extent as to what they were speaking and prophesying. They certainly longed to know, but they never fully understood. Yet even though their own prophecies were shrouded in mystery, they were still faithful to God. And in the same way as we wait for God's promises and, and for Jesus to come again, we're called to live with, with a humble faith. Trusting in God, even, even in the mystery of not fully knowing what God's up to or when his promises will come, ag- come about. As, as Ian Duguid again writes, we may take comfort in God's sure and certain control of each day of history, both global history and our own personal history, all the way to the bitter end. We may be sure of Christ's personal bodily return to claim his people and usher in the new creation. Yet at the same time, we should also learn proper humility concerning our ability to predict the time and the precise outworking of such important events. And so we 
Again, we wait with mystery and in humility, which leads us to number five, which is we wait with compassion and urgency. We wait with compassion and urgency. In the last verse of Daniel 8, we read, verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. It seems as though Daniel was, was deeply affected and overcome in seeing the, the, this pending judgment of God and the persecution of his people that was to come. And in Daniel 9, we actually read that this, his, this knowledge, his knowledge of what's to come actually leads him to, to pray a deep and heartfelt prayer of repentance and a plea for God's mercy on behalf of all God's people. So he, he's filled with this sense of empathy and urgency to see the lost return to God while there's still time. And this should be the state of our heart as well as we wait for Christ to return. We should have a deep compassion and desire for, for the broken and, and, and to see people come to know the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So when, when some people think of, of Jesus' return and him coming again, they, they get this idea, they seem to get this idea that somehow they now just get to sit around and just wait for Jesus to come again while smugly turning their nose up at people that are headed for judgment. And yes, Jesus' return is our hope, and it's, and it's natural then that we'd long for him to come sooner than later, but that also means that, that time is, is running out. And if he's coming... We should actually be filled with an urgency and compassion for the marginalized and for the lost. This is our calling uh, as Christ's exiles in the world, to seek justice, to proclaim the gospel. As Paul says here, knowing the fear of the Lord, in other words, knowing that Jesus is coming with righteous judgment, we persuade others. We convince others and proclaim others that... Proclaim to others the gospel so that when Jesus comes, they know him too. So, so that like us, they're judged according to Christ's perfect work at the cross, not by their own sin. Again, Jesus was filled with tears and compassion for the lost and hurting. And, and, and that's why it was for the joy of their salvation that he went to the cross to pay for our sins. Therefore, we too should have that same mind, that same heart and compassion for those who need Jesus and a desire to, to, to do what it takes to see as many come to him as possible and experience his grace and mercy as we wait for his return. All right, this leads us to my sixth point, which is that God informs us of, of what's coming so that we can be prepared as well. So six, we wait in preparation. So through Daniel, God, God informed his people of what was coming. And this was so that they, they wouldn't be surprised and also so that they could be prepared for it when, when, this, when this stuff came, when this stuff happened, so that they'd be ready and drawn to trust in God through it. In the same vein, we're, we're actually warned by Jesus multiple times to be prepared for his second coming. Mark 15, 35 to 37 says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus is saying here, be ready. Use this time of waiting to allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify, purify, and prepare your heart. And the way we can become prepared is, is mainly through doing what, what Jesus calls us to do, through prayer and fasting and reading and being obedient to his word and serving others and, and worshiping with other believers and, and, and in storing our treasures in heaven. 
Ultimately, if Jesus is coming for us, for his bride, for his church, I think we'd want to ensure that he knows us and that we know him and are ready for him when he does. And finally then, point number seven, as we wait, we go about the king's business. The last line of Daniel chapter 8 informs us that after Daniel lay sick in bed for days, he then got up and went about the king's business. He, he went to his job. So, so yes, we should have hope and look ahead to the future, but it's also important to understand that, that, that we're called to live practically and responsibly today as well, and that there's purpose in this too. As we wait for Jesus to return, we're, we're called to live out our lives in this world, to flourish, to work, to be active in our community, to honor our leaders, to make art, to raise our kids, to love our neighbors, serve the poor, to go to school, and, and, and of course, to bring glory to God in all of these areas. This is an encouraging reminder for us that no matter what place God has us during this time, it has value and it has purpose. It matters. Just as Duguid again writes, so learn from Jesus how to wait. As you wait, your life has real value and meaning. A cup of cold water given in Jesus' name has worth. Serving your neighbor has value. Sharing the gospel is important. Creating something beautiful has significance. Caring for your loved ones has meaning. But these penultimate acts have meaning precisely because of the ultimate act of redemption that God accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. They have value because the day will come when the penultimate gives way to the ultimate. And on that day, we shall be waiting for God no longer. So as we wait for Christ's return, as, as we live in this time of longing and even go through trials as exiles of the kingdom of God in this world, Daniel's vision is a confident reminder for, for us that God is in control, which means our waiting isn't useless. It's not a waste of time, but with our hearts set on Christ, it can actually be full of purpose, grace, calling, and hope. So let's remember to live our lives then in anticipation of Christ's return. And in closing, I just want to end my message today with the Apostle Paul's words about this uh, to the Corinthians from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and verses 5 to 11. It says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience.